Hello and welcome to Pay-Per-View episode 88. Pay-Per-View is five years old today as I record this. Thank you everyone who has listened and supported the podcast over the last five years. I'm also delighted to announce that my new book, Reality Check, will be published on March 10th. It's available for pre-order now at pay-per-view.uk. I'll be talking about it in more detail closer to the time, but in the meantime, I will uh, continue doing the uh, Reality Check podcast. It's a book that is very much needed at this time, and there's going to be a new format to pay-per-view episodes this year. Instead of covering an article and then giving my analysis on the article, the subject, and then moving on to another article and doing that throughout the episode, I'm going to cover all the articles first and then give my analysis on all the subjects and if there are any connections between them then what the connections are. The first subject of this new format is smart devices. This is in the Telegraph. Why British homes are at risk from Trojan horse smart devices. Across the US, websites began to stutter, stall and go offline. Error messages showing 404 page not found popped up across popular sites including Reddit and Twitter as they went down. In the largest internet blackout of its kind, the US web found itself under sustained attack by a vast botnet which fired millions of requests per second at internet servers until they collapsed under the strain. The cyber attack was particularly unusual. An army of hackers were not behind the botnet, rather it was around 600,000 hacked home internet devices such as routers and security cameras that were spamming the web. Even digital water pumps and ovens were used to overwhelm websites. Known as Mirai, the virus hijacked the growing net. Everything's a virus these days, isn't it? The growing network of smart gadgets in the 2016 cyber attack. I talk about cyber attacks in the new book. Uh, Klaus Schwab at the cult front organization, the World Economic Forum, has talked about the potential of a massive cyber attack. And we're seeing this theme emerge from different sources, which is always a sign that something is planned and it's been simulated as well which is another sign as i talk about in the new book the article continues the incident was one of the first examples of so-called internet of things devices being weaponized prompting a wave of concern about the security of these devices and their possible misuse which the alternative media on the internet was talking about years back now fears are growing that the Internet of Things technology could pose another previously overlooked security risk as Trojan horse spying devices. Alarm is being raised about the possibility of the newly muscular Chinese state harnessing the potentially the vast pools of data collected by Internet connected devices ranging from cars to smart meters. The most game-changing advantage of technology is that it enables the accumulation of massive amounts of data, said Charlie Parton a former British diplomat in a report on the technology. The Chinese Communist Party views data as a strategic resource. When processed and aggregated, data can support its interests across military, economic, political, cultural and other domains. Concerns are rising as manufacturers increasingly make devices ranging from your car to a fridge that are connected to the internet by default. The push to make everything smart is partly driven, partly, I talk about the real reason for it in the new book, by a desire to keep people spending on newer, shinier gadgets to talk to each other and help people live like the Jetsons. Talk to each other, smart grid of human control. 
Many of these gadgets are gathering vast quantities of data from petabytes of security camera footage that is stored in internet databases to more mundane information on what is in your fridge that day. Other devices designed for industry track the passage of goods across continents or monitor industrial machines to ensure they are still working. Electric charging infrastructure critical to net zero is increasingly connected to the internet. Researchers are now raising questions over whether this vast array of Internet of Things devices, evolving with little security oversight, poses national security risk thanks to the potentially huge volumes of data scooped up. Smart gadgets, cameras and chips are largely manufactured in vast quantities within China. By oversight or design, millions of Internet of Things devices could have security flaws that create a risk to consumer data. As I say in the new book, these security flaws and these backdoors, as they call them, are purposely built into the technology to be exploited. Jake Moore, Global Cybersecurity Advisor at eSecurity, says devices can be utilised by a hostile state such as China to influence pressure or threaten an individual company or even an adversary. One of the key countries that exploits these cybersecurity flaws is Israel, as I talk about in the new book. Anyway, the article continues. The vast majority of Internet of Things devices are mundane in nature. They could monitor the contents of a fridge, the status of a washing machine, or the location of a shipping container. When I've said over the years that the cult's global agenda seeks control right down to the fine detail of people's lives, I was not exaggerating. The article continues. But others, including CCTV cameras, can connect to the wider Internet or even perform facial recognition functions. Smart doorbells with cameras attached or baby monitors that are connected to the web can also hoover up visual data. Vehicles are being fitted with devices that connect to the web too or can collect information on individuals' movements. Whether or not devices are intended as spying devices, they are, can be irrelevant. A report last year from the U.S. Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency warned of a Chinese-made GPS tracker fitted in millions of vehicles with the default password of 123456 that made it trivially easy for hackers to infiltrate. After the Mirai botnet attack, one Chinese manufacturer recalled more than 4.5 million security cameras that had an easy-to-guess default password. Professor Alan Woodward, a cybersecurity expert at the University of Surrey, says the bottom line is that any networked Internet of Things device can form part of an attack surface. China has become the de facto source for such devices because they are built to a very attractive price point. The trouble is you tend to get what you pay for. Security is an afterthought, if it is a thought at all. Well, it may appear to be an afterthought, but actually it's part of the design, the security flaws. The British government, the article continues, has started to wake up to the potential threats of these cheap and cheerful internet-connected gadgets last year. Parliament passed the Product Security and Telecommunications Infrastructure Act, which forces makers of smartphones, TVs, speakers and routers to meet minimum cybersecurity standards and tell customers at the time of purchase when their new items will stop receiving security software updates. Are they updates or are they means to exploit the security of the device? The government departments have also been ordered to strip out security cameras made by Chinese companies Hikvision and Dahua. Have I said that right? Dahua? Cameras notoriously caught snapshots of former health secretary Matt Hancock embracing an aide in his office which later leaked to the press. 
Hickvision has called concerns about its technology and a substantiated and a knee-jerk reaction. There are concerns that China's dominance of technology runs deeper than just consumer gadgets. Ministers previously ordered telecoms companies to strip technology made by China's Huawei from mobile and broadband networks by 2027 amid concerns it represented a national security risk, something the company always denied. Three Chinese companies, Quetel, Fibercom and China Mobile, make up roughly half of global shipments of IoT cellular modules, according to data from CounterPoint Research. While these historically only process tiny packets of data over 2G networks, increasingly they are picking up and transmitting more information over 4G and 5G mobile networks. The proliferation of these IoT modules means that bugs or backdoors, whether left in by design, by design, or by accident, are a risk. Concerns have only mounted after a concealed tracking device was found in a government car believed to have been planted in a part imported from China, the eye reported. This is how these backdoors and these security flaws are built in. Different parts of the technology are made in different places by different people, and none of them know what the parts are for. The article continues, under Chinese law, the CCP can compel companies to aid intelligence gathering operations and provide customer data. Parton has gone as far as to call for a ban on the sale and installation of new Chinese IoT kits that connect to cellular networks. Parton, the former diplomat who now works for the consultancy OODA, writes in a report sent to government officials, Chinese Communist Party policy documents show the strategic importance of IoT technology to the party. In line with CCP industrial policy to promote global champions in new industries, IoT companies have benefited from the creation of a domestic market, which excludes international competition. For now, the article continues, the main risk presented by IoT technology appears to be weak security practices and cheap hackable gadgets. But as China's dominance continues to grow, a more strategic threat could be emerging. A government spokesman said, we are legislating to protect consumers' connected devices such as smartphones, TV speakers and routers through new laws to strengthen their privacy and security. It will ban sales in the UK of smart devices with poor cyber security and get rid of easy to guess passwords which are often introduced as standard with consumer tech. Now, I've talked before about the health consequences of smart devices, how it can affect the health of the body and manipulate perception. And I'll talk about the real reason for smart devices when I give my analysis at the end. But one of the justifications for smart technology probably the biggest one is human caused climate change which i have talked about in this podcast before and i've gone into it in in the books and here's an article on the daily exposed website which does some brilliant articles very few scientists agree that climate change is driven by human activity i talk about this in the new book this idea of 97 percent of scientists say humans are causing climate change First of all, that doesn't mean it's true. The intellectuals of a few centuries ago believed that there was only one galaxy in the entire universe. Now the estimate is up to potentially trillions of galaxies. People said Earth was the centre of the solar system and now we know, of course, it's the sun. So the fact that 97% of scientists, even if they were saying it, means nothing. The truth is the truth and it's the truth whether one person says it or nobody says it. The truth is what it is regardless of how many people accept it to be so including scientists and experts the 97 percent was made up so the source that is often quoted for this lie is john cook 
Climate Communication Fellow for the Global Change Institute at the University of Queensland. The official story is that Cook examined 11,944 papers and gleaned his figure from this examination. However, Cook himself states in a paper entitled Quantifying the Consensus on Anthropogenic Global Warming in the Scientific Literature that only 32.6% actually agreed, although not all of them that human-caused warming was the driving factor. 0.3% were uncertain, 0.7% rejected the idea altogether, but 64% expressed no position. So if you add all those percentages together, it means that a whopping 65% stated no position, were unsure, or rejected anthropogenic global warming. In other words, human-caused global warming altogether. So the vast majority of scientists don't support the idea of human activity causing climate change and potential devastation. And how many of those who said they do support the lie were funded to that end, or were thinking about their career? If you get rid of those two groups of people, how many are actually left that genuinely believe humans are causing climate change? We're constantly told to trust the science because those telling us to do that know most people won't bother to check the science. But we'll trust that it must be true if all these scientists are saying it, when all these scientists are not saying it. The 97% figure is just fabrication. The article on the Daily Exposed website, and it's written by a guy called Gregory Wrightstone, who's the executive director of the CO2 Coalition. You have likely heard, it says, that 97% of scientists agree on human-driven climate change. You may also have heard that those who don't buy into the climate apocalypse mantra are science deniers. The truth is that a whole lot more than 3% of scientists are skeptical of the party line on climate, a whole lot more. The many scientists, engineers and energy experts that comprise the CO2 coalition are often asked something along the lines of, so you believe in climate change then? Our answer, yes, of course we do. It has been happening for hundreds of millions of years. It is important to ask the right questions. The question is not, is climate change happening? The real question of serious importance is, is climate change now driven primarily by human actions? That question should be followed up by, is our changing climate beneficial or harmful to ecosystems and humanity? The claim that most modern warming is attributable to human activities is scientifically unsupportable. If indeed 97% of all scientists truly believe that human activities were causing the moderate warming that we have seen in the last 150 years, it would be reasonable for one to consider this when determining what to believe. One would be wrong, however. Science, unlike religion, is not a belief system. Scientists, just like anyone else, will say that they believe things, whether they believe them or not, for social convenience, political expediency, or financial profit. That's a great point there, and that's kind of the point I've just made. Even if 97% of scientists did agree humans cause climate change, doesn't make it true. And how many real scientists are there out there? I think it's a lot less than most people would think. For this and other good reasons, science is not founded upon the beliefs of scientists. It is a disciplined method of inquiry by which scientists apply pre-existing theory to observation and measurement, so as to develop or to reject theory so that they can unravel as clearly and as certainly as possible the distinction between what the Greek philosopher Anaximander called that which is and that which is not. 
Abu Ali ibn al-Haytham, the natural philosopher of 11th century Iraq who founded the scientific method in the East, once wrote, The seeker after truth does not place his faith in any mere consensus, however venerable or widespread. Instead, he subjects what he has learned of it to inquiry, inspection and investigation. The road to the truth is long and hard, but that is the road we must follow. I don't think it needs to be necessarily long and hard, but I take his point. The article continues, The long and hard road to scientific truth cannot be followed by the trivial expedient of a mere headcount among those who make their livings from government funding. Therefore, the mere fact that climate activists find themselves so often appealing to an imagined, and as we shall see, imaginary consensus is a red flag. They are far less sure of the supposed scientific truths to which they cling than they would like us to believe. Consensus here is a crutch for lame science. What then is the origin of the 97% consensus notion? Is it backed up with research and data? And then it talks about where the figure came from, as I've just, as I've just explained. And it talks about agnotology, which is defined as the study of how ignorance arises via circulation of misinformation calculated to mislead in relation to the paper by John Cook, was the origin, of, or at least one of the often quoted sources for the 97% of scientists agree claim. Another quote about agnotology in the article, Agnotology has the strong potential for misuse, whereby a manufactured consensus view can be used to stifle discussion, debate, and critical thinking. That's exactly what happens with climate change, with vaccines, with biology, and many other subjects. And speaking of vaccines, we're going to move on to vaccines now. This is in the Daily Mail. Massive spike in excess deaths sparks cause for an urgent investigation. NHS crisis is blamed for nearly 3,000 more Brits than usual dying each week. MPs have called for an urgent investigation into Britain's soaring death rates as thousands more people than usual are dying each week. Some 17,381 deaths were registered in England and Wales in the seven days to January 13th, 2,837 above average for the time of year. This is the highest number of excess deaths since 3,429 in the week to February 12th, 2021, when the UK was experiencing its second wave of COVID-19 infections and vaccination had only just begun. Infections tested positive with a test that's not even invented to be a test. The article continues, On that occasion, deaths involving coronavirus accounted for 37% of all those registered, according to the Office for National Statistics. But in the most recent week, this was published on 24th of January, but in the most recent week, COVID-19 accounted for just 5% of the total, meaning other factors are likely to be driving the high level of mortality. Other factors are driving all of the deaths because there is no COVID-19, as I've detailed in this podcast before, in detail in depth in the new book. Health experts say this could include ambulance delays, long waits in A&E, unmet need during the pandemic that didn't exist, and major backlogs for routine NHS care. Excess deaths, sometimes known as extra deaths, are the number of deaths that are above the average for the same period in previous years. This winter has seen a sharp spike in the figures, with deaths 21% and 20% above average in the last two weeks of December, followed by 14% and 20% in the first two weeks of January. 
The Royal College of Emergency Medicine has warned up to 500 people a week are dying as a result of ambulance and treatment delays. Labour shadow Public Health Minister Andrew Gwynne on Tuesday accused the government of denial and butt-passing and branded Steve Barkley part man, part ostrich because of his refusal to accept the figures. Speaking during health questions in the Commons, Mr Gwynne said there were 50,000 more deaths than we would have otherwise expected in 2022, excluding the pandemic that is the worst figure since 1951. The health secretary, part man, part ostrich, says he doesn't accept those figures, but as many as 500 people are dying every week waiting for essential care and we're still getting the old Tory denial and buck passing, he said. Health Minister Maria Caulfield replied, Well, I prefer to deal with facts. The British Medical Journal has ranked the UK mid-table in Europe for mortality figures comparable with Italy. In fact, Germany has got higher excess deaths at 15.6%, Finland at 20.5% and Poland at 13.3%. Uh, Coalfield said there are clinical reasons for excess deaths, not political ones, and perhaps he needs to recognise that fact. Conservative former Minister Esther McVeigh asked for an urgent and thorough investigation into the excess deaths. She told the Commons that Chief Medical Officer recently warned that current non-COVID excess deaths are being driven in part by patients not getting statins or blood pressure medicines during the pandemic. But when looking at the data on statins on openprescribing.net, which is based on monthly NHS prescribing, there appears not to be a drop. So where is the evidence? And if there isn't one, what is causing these excess deaths? Will the Minister commit to an urgent and thorough investigation on the matter? Miss Caulfield replied, We are seeing an increase in excess deaths in this country, but we're also seeing that in Wales, in Scotland, Northern Ireland, and across Europe, and there are a range of factors. There's an increase, as we saw in December, in the number of people being admitted with flu, COVID, and with other healthcare conditions, and this is not something just seen in this country, but across Europe as well. Interesting that the COVID fake vaccine can cause flu-like symptoms. The article continues, the latest data shows deaths involving flu and pneumonia accounted for nearly a quarter, 24% of all those registered in England and Wales in the first two weeks of the year. Deaths where flu and pneumonia were recorded as the underlying cause of death accounted for 9% of registrations in the week to January 6th and 8% in the latest week levels not seen since before the pandemic. Addressing the Commons Health and Social Care Committee earlier in the day, RCEM President Dr. Adrian Boyle defended his colleagues claiming that delays to emergency care are killing hundreds of people a week. He added, We've certainly had the worst ever December we've had. If you look at performance figures on every metric, what went on in December was terrible. We've got serious structural problems that impair our ability to deliver urgent and emergency care. Things have been going wrong for quite a long time and came to a head over December. The article continues, Data from NHS England show that a record 54,000 532 people waited more than 12 hours in A&E departments last month from a decision to admit to actually being admitted. But Dr Boyle said that some of these patients could have been waiting hours before a decision was made to admit them. Uh, the figures also showed that the proportion of patients seen within four hours in England's A&Es fell to a record low of 65% in December. Dr Boyle called for improvements to NHS 111 to prevent unnecessary A&E visits and for hospitals to share the burden of an influx of patients by admitting more onto wards instead of leaving crowds of people in emergency departments for hours on end. He said more must be done to stop the hemorrhage of emergency care nurses saying that he signed a leaving card every time he went to work. Dr Boyle said too many patients are arriving at A&E when they do not need to be there with some turning up because they cannot see a GP and others referred by overcautious call takers on the non-emergency NHS 111 helpline. 
He said doctors or nurses should have a greater role in triaging callers to the service, adding there is a lack of clinical validation and a lack of clinical access within NHS 111. Half of calls to NHS 111 have some form of clinical input. There's an awful lot which are just people following an algorithm, and because of that, where you have call handlers who are just following a computer-generated algorithm, they are necessarily risk-averse. We know there's good evidence if you get clinicians involved with NHS 111, you can reduce the number of people who are either directed to an ambulance, to a GP, or to an emergency department. This is a great article on the Spectator website. The problem with the BBC's reporting on excess deaths. I recall the newsroom conversations during the dark days of the pandemic only too well. They were upsetting at the time. Now, as we see a disturbing rise in excess deaths across the country, the thought of them fills me with horror and outrage. You do realise these lockdowns and restrictions will end up killing people too, don't you? I would say to senior editorial colleagues with something approaching desperation in my voice. Sure, the virus is a serious threat to a small proportion of the population, but the longer term consequences of shutting the economy down and closing off the NHS will be deadly for huge numbers who were never at serious risk from the virus, people with years of life ahead of them. Should we not be reflecting that in our coverage? Shouldn't we be considering the possibility that the government is going down the wrong path on this? The response of these colleagues would vary in tone from patient but patronising good humour to open mockery. Many were influenced, I believe, by social media echo chambers curated by pernicious algorithms. My colleagues had swallowed the myopic belief adopted by people largely on the liberal left that only lockdowns could save lives and protect the NHS from the devastation threatened by COVID-19. Anyone who demurred was, as far as they were concerned, clearly a right-wing lunatic. That's a good point. We had the, the right in politics in Britain, the Conservative Party, which were in power over the course of the pandemic and of course still are, imposing fascism on the population. And then we had the left of uh, the Labour Party said the Conservative Party was not doing enough and if they came into power there would be more restrictions, in other words, more fascism. And it's called political choice. The article continues. Now we can all see how well that is working out. Provisional figures released this week, this is the 15th of January, revealed that more than 650,000 deaths were registered in the UK in 2022, 9% more than 2019. This is one of the largest excess death levels outside the pandemic in 50 years. But despite many of the causes of this being obvious, the BBC is pretending the development has come as something of a shock. First to tackle the figures was the BBC's head of statistics who appeared on the news channel shortly after the stats were released in the morning. Astonishingly, during the entirety of this correspondence grim analysis, the word lockdown was not mentioned once. The term pandemic hangover was used without mentioning lockdown consequences. This was perhaps no surprise given BBC News reporters continued to conflate the impacts of COVID restrictions with the direct effects of the virus itself. A lot of people have been wandering around in the last two years not getting treated for things that could cause heart problems later on, he said. In this regard, he was only half right. People had not been wandering around at all during the pandemic. They'd been staying at home, too terrified to see their doctor after watching apocalyptic BBC News reports from COVID wards. And that was not helped by people like Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer in Britain, who told people to stay at home and not go to hospital. And now he's saying that we're seeing people middle-aged dying of heart conditions that weren't untreated because they didn't go to hospital. Hospitals that were empty, by the way, and could have seen people, 
as citizen journalists and people who worked in hospitals, some brave people who spoke out about it, revealed. Empty hospitals. That's why nurses and doctors were doing dance routines and filming them, putting them on TikTok because they didn't have anything else to do. And of course, if the alternative media and citizen journalists can uncover that fact, then so could the mainstream media, but they decided to report wars in hospitals and to tell the population to stay at home. Anyway, the article continues. The correspondent was not finished, though. The most worrying statistic, he said, related to the previous two weeks, with deaths running at 20% higher than usual, a trend he warned that could keep on running throughout January and February. The news anchor weighed in, saying there were very big questions for the government and for the NHS to answer. I was left wondering who would pose the very big questions to the BBC about its role in all this. The BBC's analysis did not just fall short because it failed to mention the L-word. In broad terms, it connected the excess deaths to a combination of missed treatments and an NHS already in crisis. Yet anyone working for BBC News knows full well that the NHS is in crisis every single winter. In the new book, I've got three whole chapters on the COVID hoax. And I've got an image where someone's taken a screenshot of images of headlines saying basically... The NHS is overwhelmed from 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016 and so on. In other words, every year we're told the NHS is overwhelmed. There was nothing special about that during the pandemic hoax. It was just, it was highlighted more. Even though the hospitals were empty. The article continues. Anyone working for BBC News knows full well the NHS is in crisis every single winter. This knowledge did not stop BBC editors ignoring warnings that lockdowns would only exacerbate health service bottlenecks once restrictions were totally lifted. Despite leading on COVID countless times during the pandemic, The World at One on Radio 4 did not even mention excess deaths in its opening headlines. The news bulletin that followed Wato's preamble, however, did lead on the story with a report by a health and disinformation reporter. I love the uh, disinformation reporter. The BBC has, disinforma- has a disinformation reporter, and that's about right, because they are there to communicate disinformation to the population. The article continues, again, there was no direct mention of lockdowns or the fact that many people had warned that we would in time pay a terrible price for reaching for the blunt instrument of authoritarian Chinese-style restrictions. I talk about the relevance of China to the pandemic hoax in the new book, and the idea is that eventually the Chinese model of control and dictatorial fascism is rolled out worldwide as a global control system, as I explain in the new book. The article continues, the fact that a reporter with a joint brief encompassing disinformation was covering this story tells you everything you need to know about the BBC's muddled and compromised approach to COVID. It should go without saying that BBC health reporters must not present unsubstantiated assertions as facts in their reports. But throughout the pandemic, they did just that, exaggerated claims about the efficacy of masks and vaccines to stop transmission of the coronavirus were repeated without any meaningful interrogation. We now know, thanks to Isabel Oakshot, that mask mandates were more to do with politics and messaging than science. Regrettably, as is the case with many liberal media outlets, the BBC's disinformation reporting has become a selective and somewhat political exercise in debunking claims that don't chime with the worldviews of editors. Mask mandates more to do with politics and messaging. In the new book, I look at the, the psychological manipulation behind the COVID hoax. 
The same health and disinformation report to the article continues had already had a go at unpicking the excess deaths figures on the BBC News channel shortly before midday. She was keen to point out that excess deaths during the pandemic years of 2020 and 2021 were much higher due to very clear direct COVID deaths. I remember working in the BBC's newsroom during those years and it was never very clear how many people had died as a direct consequence of the coronavirus. Deaths were reported within 28 days of infection and any caveats about comorbidities were jettisoned very early in the pandemic. Deaths within 28 days of a positive test were the test that can't test for the virus, as I also show in the new book. Or 28 or 60 days were listed as a COVID death no matter what the person actually died of. COVID-19 went on the death certificate. The article continues, the BBC says that we have covered the newly released data on excess deaths with great care and in detail across our news output, which is what people expect of the BBC. But as the day wore on, the excess death story slipped down running orders. The six o'clock news on BBC One was 13 minutes in before it got around to reporting the figures. Who better than to shed light on the mystery than the BBC's own Sir Chris Whitty stand-in, the BBC's health editor, who was given little over a minute to talk about the statistics. His analysis could have passed unnoticed, but I jerked to attention when the L word escaped, perhaps unbidden from his lips. As he explained, there's more and more speculation and examination now with the fact that people did not get certain operations, treatments and appointments during lockdowns, and that contributed to their conditions getting worse, and that led to their death subsequently. Finally, I thought, a BBC journalist who was not not mincing his words, but my relief at hearing this bold statement turned to anger once again when I remembered predicting these exact outcomes and pleading with the BBC editors who could have made a difference. Three days later, BBC News provided more evidence that a lack of journalistic rigour marks much of its reporting on COVID, but in a way I could not have predicted. In a vetting lapse, comparable to the occasion when Jeffrey Epstein's former lawyer Alan Dershowitz was interviewed following the conviction of Ghislaine Maxwell in December 2021, Dr. Asim Malhotra was invited onto the news channel to talk about statins. Malhotra took advantage of a distracted presenter to espouse his controversial views on COVID-19 mRNA jabs. Adding to the embarrassing nature of this booking was the timing. The heart specialist was platformed only a couple of days after Andrew Bridgen was suspended as a Conservative MP for tweeting that he had spoken to a cardiologist who seemed to compare the vaccines to the Holocaust. Malhotra has firmly denied he was the cardiologist in question, but Bridgen was quick to tweet his praise for the consultant's interview. The cardiologist that Andrew Bridgen quoted is an Israeli Jewish person who said that fake vaccine is the biggest crime against humanity since the Holocaust. Israeli Jewish person saying that. That was never mentioned. And of course it's the COVID fake vaccine which is one of the main causes, if not the main cause of the excess deaths that this article talks about. The article continues. Malhotra's appearance will no doubt result in an internal inquiry and a row on social media. Meanwhile, in the real world, people are continuing to die needlessly and in part because our publicly funded state broadcaster took sides and hitched the BBC's wagon to short-term measures, drawn up in a panic with no cost-benefit analysis that were always going to turn out to be self-destructive and lethal in the longer term. It will now be many years before the full casualty count is tallied. The day the BBC finally accepts responsibility for its role in this is also without doubt a long time in the future. Well, let's hope that the truth about the COVID fake vaccine coming out is not a long time in the future. This is a clip from a news report about the first batch of Pfizer documents, even though Pfizer tried to keep them hidden for 75 years. Fortunately, a judge overturned that and they're coming out now and this clip talks about what was found in one of the documents one of the documents called 5.3.6 cumulative analysis of post authorization adverse event reports of pf-073 
BNT162B2 received through 28th February 2021. So listen to this. This is the psychopathic nature of pharmaceutical cartel. The FDA released the first round of thousands of pages of data submitted by Pfizer for review of their COVID-19 vaccine. It's the 5.3.6 post-marketing analysis of the adverse events in which they outlined that 83% of all pregnant women who got vaccinated ended up with a dead baby. They had 270 pregnancies. They could not account for what happened to 238 of those pregnancies. In the remaining pregnancies resulted in a dead baby. And they only had one normal outcome. And originally the documents were going to take 55 years to be released, but because of a court order, we'll get all of the documents by year's end. I talk about the effect on fertility of the COVID fake vaccine in the new book. Now this is interesting as well. This is from a Hungarian parliament hearing in 2022, last year. Thank you for the floor, Mr. President. Honorable National Assembly, in January this year, something happened that has not happened for decades. The birth rate fell by 20% compared to the same period last year. Choba Gétort, researcher at the KRTK Institute of Economics, points out that this drastic decline came just nine months after the COVID mass vaccinations began in Hungary. And I'll explain the real reason. It's about depopulation and if you want to control a global population then if you can massively limit the numbers of people in the population then obviously it makes them easier to control but there's another key reason why there is a depopulation agenda and I'll explain that when I give my analysis later. So we're going to move on now to a subject that is very relevant to the Covid fake vaccine and that is genetics. This is in The Independent top geneticist warns UK is embarking on experiment that could cause great harm. The top geneticist has warned the UK government's plans for looser regulation around precision bred animals and plants is a massive experiment that could cause great harm to the planet. Renowned broadcaster and fertility expert Lord Winston told Parliament he was very concerned that the use of this technology could have unintended consequences as the bill passed its report stage in the House of Lords. He said every single piece of technology that humans have ever produced has a downside that we don't expect and that we don't recognise and predict at the time. And I would argue that this is one of these examples of technology that we have a duty as a House in Parliament to examine extremely carefully and I'm not sure we've done that yet. He added, in my view, we are embarking on a massive experiment which could have global repercussions. When we start to introduce animals of a particular lack of diversity or even diversity or in different species or different areas, we have no proper data that we can really analyse to make certain that we are not doing things that are either harmful to the planet, the environment or human health or microorganisms and viruses or perhaps promoting viruses for that matter. But it doesn't have to worry about viruses because they don't exist as I detail in depth in the new book. Anyway, the article continues. Precision breeding describes a range of technologies such as gene editing that allows DNA to be edited more precisely than traditional breeding methods. It is different to genetic modification in that it changes characteristics of a plant or animal by deleting, swapping or repeating genes already present in the population of that species rather than introducing new ones and so could have occurred naturally or been produced by traditional methods. Lord Winston highlighted concerns around the impact of epigenetics, 
where the expression of a gene is influenced by its environment and the fact that genes can be influenced by other genes around them, arguing that the research on this is very, very far from being absolutely clear. He said, when we start to meddle with things, we don't necessarily find things to be quite what we expect and sometimes very markedly different. The genetic technology precision breeding bill is set to remove EU measures preventing the development and marketing of precision bred animals. Despite concerns from peers, the bill passed its report stage in the Lords unamended. Lord Winston's caution came as Defra Minister Lord Benyon said the government plans to commence the new regulation. Using a phased-in process where certain species will be introduced first, namely those used in agriculture and aquaculture. He added that precision bred animals are unlikely to appear in the UK market until the next decade. Lord Benyon said, I want to make a commitment on the floor of this house that we will adopt a phased-in approach to commencing the measures in this bill, the measure in this bill in relation to animals. We will commence the measures in the bill only for a select group of animal species in the first instance before commencing these measures in relation to other species. For example, in the first phase, it is likely to be animals typically used in agriculture or aquaculture. Plants commencement regulations will come forward in 2024, but I don't see it unless science moves at a particularly rapid rate that plants will be ready for market for four to five years from royal assent. Animals, I suspect, will be two to three years after that. Defending the government's action, he said, for me, it's about looking at crops that I see frying in heat waves that we never had when I was younger. It's about talking to farmers who have Belgian blue cattle that can only give birth to cows by its caesarean section because they have been bred through traditional breeding methods in a way that makes natural calving impossible. And it's about connecting some of these aberrations that have existed and the opportunity. We can tie ourselves down with the negatives about this, but the opportunities of this legislation, what it offers for animal welfare and for tackling issues like climate change are immense. The government saw off a Labour front bench attempt to get a framework for their phased in approach on the face of the bill. The House of Lords voted by 206 to 192, majority 14, to reject an amendment by former Labour shadow death minister Baroness Heyman of Ullock. He proposed a set of conditions in a time frame. The government later saw off a bid by peers to secure stronger welfare protections against around precision breeding in animals. The House of Lords rejected by 193 votes to 173, majority 20, a demand for additional safeguards in the authorisation process. Pressing for extra protection, Baroness Jones of, Winch- of Whitchurch said, As the bill stands, there is too much left to chance. Liberal Democrat Baroness Bakewell of Hardington Mandeville said, Such is the interest in this bill and the consequences which flow from it that we believe belt and braces approach is necessary but responding Lord Benyon said existing animal welfare legislation is in place and this bill is intended to work alongside that to enable responsible innovation he added I think you can overdo caution in these circumstances and you can clog up the system the bill already outlines a regulatory framework to safeguard animal welfare which goes beyond existing requirements from traditional breeding a Liberal Democrat led amendment also related to animal welfare was rejected by peers the Lords voted 176 to 161 majority 15 in favour of the government. Okay, so what's the connection between all these subjects? Well, the Covid fake vaccine is designed to cause adverse events and deaths as a means of suppressing and depopulating the human race. The World Health Organization, which declared and oversaw the response to the Covid hoax globally, is an agency of the United Nations, which is itself a satellite organization of a secret society called the Round Table, set up by the global cult, specifically the Rothschilds, in 1901. One of the agendas of the United Nations, created after World War II by the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds, with its headquarters sitting on land donated for free by the Rockefellers, is Agenda 21-2030. I talk about this agenda in my first book, Pay-Per-View in Print.
The justification for Agenda 21, among others, is human-caused climate change. I demolished the lie of human-caused climate change in pay-per-view in print. Agenda 21 seeks to crown people into human settlement zones, as they call them, in smart cities, and get people off the land, off the countryside and more natural areas. If you're going to do that, you need to depopulate a massive amount of the global population. And of course, what we're now seeing also is life being made either difficult for farmers or farmers being given incentives to stop farming. We see this in the Netherlands, the second biggest exporter of food in the world, where Prime Minister Mark Rutte is targeting farmers officially because of climate change. But in truth, the World Economic Forum agenda contributor Mark Rutter is targeting farmers to destroy the, the independent income of the farmers, make it more difficult for them to carry on and to limit the food supply chain, not just in the Netherlands but worldwide. But the UK government is paying lump sums up to £100,000 to encourage farmers to retire from farming. A state level plan in California is paying farmers to grow less. The Biden administration in May 2021 began encouraging farmers to add agricultural land to the Conservation Reserve Programme, which essentially pays farmers not to farm. The plan is that food, as we know it now, will be replaced by synthetic food as part of the synthetic human agenda, which also brings in the gender agenda, a more synthetic human, a non-procreating human. You can't go there in one big leap, so you confuse gender on the way to fusing gender to the point where there is no gender. It's not about transgender, it's about no gender. And the COVID fake vaccine is inserting synthetic genetic material into the body, as I explain in the new book. As I said, if you're going to achieve this smart cities agenda, you've got to depopulate a massive amount of the global population. And I talk in pay-per-view in print about various ways the global depopulation agenda plays out. The COVID fake vaccine has caused an unprecedented number of adverse reactions and deaths worldwide. In the new book, I have a whole chapter on the COVID fake vaccine and take apart the idea that the fake vaccine is either safe or effective and look at some of the consequences people have faced from the fake vaccine as well as some of the figures of adverse events and deaths. Smart cities and smart devices, which are incredibly bad for health. Mega cities in Agenda 21 talk are designed to be controlled by artificial intelligence. The human mind is planned to be replaced by AI through smart and other technology on and in the body. This is known as transhumanism. Through chemtrails, which are justified by human-caused climate change, which look like normal jet engine trails, but they don't disappear. After a few seconds, like normal condensation trails, contrails, they expand and contain metals and chemicals which fall to the ground. And people are taken in these chemicals all the time. And that is one cause of illnesses like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and other such conditions. And another constituent of chemtrails is nanotechnology which transhuman insiders and global promoters like Ray Kurzweil, a Google executive, have said and written will be the means through which the human mind will be connected to the smart grid or cloud, as Kurzweil and others call it, which is planned to be run by artificial intelligence. I talk in the new book about what this AI actually is, its true nature. The transhuman agenda is the end game of the cult's agenda, which is where it's always been leading. 
and it's up to us to decide whether or not this transhuman, anti-human agenda. This is why we're seeing everything that humans need being attacked. And it's interesting when you look at everything that humans need to survive and the way it's being targeted. Air, water and food are the three essential requirements for human life. Well, I've already talked about food. CO2 is being targeted by labelling it a dangerous pollutant, carbon dioxide, when it's actually the gas of life without which the natural world could not exist and thus provide humans with oxygen and food growth. As I point out in pay-per-view in print, far from having too much carbon dioxide, which doesn't cause climate change, that's a scientific nonsense, but as I point out in pay-per-view in print in which I demolish the human caused climate change hoax, far from having too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we don't have enough in terms of the amount necessary for optimum plant and food growth. At the same time, Bill Gates is funding technology uh, to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere so we've got even less when we don't even have enough in the first place. Water is filled with chemicals, not least fluoride, uh, which is incredibly dangerous to health as I go into in the new book, and uh, even residues from prescription drugs, and that's the latter uh, fact has even appeared in newspaper articles which I've read. The chemicals in water are being deluged with chemicals from the sky in the form of chemtrails, as I said. And think about this, the human body is up to 60% water, so think what impact so think what impact dirty water filled with chemicals interacting with the body's own internal water can have on health. Food is in many cases either genetically modified or is made from animals which have been fed GM animal feed and you've got toxins in food as well. The supply of food is being targeted now. Medicine for sickness and illness is often produced in a way which can cause illness and more problems and only temporarily mask the original problems at best. Vaccines cause enormous health and cognitive problems as I detail over, I think, 55 pages it is in the new book. And another, what, nearly 60 pages on the COVID vaccine. The understanding of sickness in the body is based on an entirely false premise which avoids the real causes of illness, toxins, radiation, pharma medicine, vaccines, while blaming sickness on viruses and bacteria which have never been proven to cause disease or even exist in terms of viruses. People are being told now to reduce their use of energy and many elderly people in the final stages of life, even at the best of times, are given the choice between being warm or fed because they can't afford both. When, and I know this for a fact, free energy technology, which costs nothing once it's set up and the setup is relatively affordable, certainly a lot cheaper than paying energy bills. Once it's set up, it uses the natural energy and energy grid and magnetic field of the planet to to produce usable warmth and power without using carbon dioxide without using fossil fuels doesn't need it it uses the natural energy grid of the planet that technology has existed for decades i know that for a fact that technology would eliminate the need for energy bills it's just sitting there while people are suffering because they can't afford to be warm and feed themselves when the technology that would eliminate that problem is right there.
we're surrounded and ever more so by technologically generated, highly distorted radiation fields from wireless devices, towers and satellites which can manifest as endless health and mental and emotional problems. Toxins are everywhere, including in, including in cleaning products. This uh, range of toxins that we're uh, exposed to is incredible. The money system, the banking system, is based on lending people non-existent money called credit and charging them non-existent interest, which is not even created its credit, on top. And if they can't pay back that non-existent credit plus non-existent non-created interest, which doesn't exist, it just figures on a screen, the banking system can take their business land and possessions that do exist. So we have an anti-human society and an anti-human agenda because the people that run this world are fundamentally anti-human. So it's up to us to decide whether or not this transhuman, anti-human agenda succeeds or whether we stop it happening by withdrawing our acquiescence, both physically and perceptually, which allows it to happen. So that's it for this week. That's the news. That's the contesting connections. That's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.